Hello, and welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I'm Pastor Greg Miller, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit NHF Church and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoyed this message. So as we are kind of moving through Ephesians at a very quick pace, uh, you may think it's not quick enough, but we're moving through it. We're in chapter five. We're going to spend two weeks on chapter five because it talks about a couple of different things that we're going to lean into heavily. And the one thing you'll know is that as we go through scripture, as you're around New Hope, is we're not going to sometimes dodge the harder issues that the Bible brings up and talks about. What we want to do is always be faithful. What, is, what does scripture say? And so as we read what Scripture says, we're going to lean into it. We may not always like what we hear about it, but it's trusting that it's there for our benefit, and so we're going to try to digest and understand it. And as we move into chapter 5, we need to give a little more context to when the city life that you may Ephesians was. The city of Ephesus was not some nice little city. It was actually this way, as one commentator writes, bear in mind that these verses that we're about to read were addressed to Christians who had come to Christ while living in the notoriously sinful port city of Ephesus. In that wicked metropolis, the dominant religion was the worship of the multi-breasted goddess Diana, and ritual prostitution was a way of life. Moreover, there was cultural acceptance of sexual perversion as valid and even exalted way of life. And Ephesus is a paradigm of some of the great cities even of today, such as San Francisco, Berlin, Hong Kong, Moscow, and Chicago. Ephesus is a port city. There's the joke, you know, People swear like a sailor. That's a general statement because sailors had this reputation back in the day and probably maybe and still today. Language wasn't their forte. When I grew up, I would work summer help at a local factory. And when I worked in the local factory, these guys would work at five o'clock in the morning till two o'clock, hard labor, working with transformers inside and out. And I remember as, again, pastor's kid, raised in a Christian home, went to a private school, we'll share that in a minute, so when I go into the factory, it's a little bit of a culture shock, just a little bit, because I walk in, and every other word is the F word or another word. And as I got through the first month of working summer help, I'm like, they don't even hear it. I hear it, and it's just like startling to me every time of, whoa, deer in the headlights, whoa, there it was, like, whoa, because that wasn't in my house. That wasn't at church being said and talked about. And yet these guys, that's normal. And that's kind of what Ephesus was like in a normal city where people are in, people are out. You're on a boat for months or weeks on end. You come to the city and you want to reprieve. You, want to, you haven't been off the boat. You don't know. And sailing at this time and in this era was not the safest job. You could sink. You would stay close to the shores. But if storms picked up, you could be adrift at sea. And so this port city of Ephesus is kind of a bastion of not Christian, not really morals of any kind, loose value, all of these things that all of a sudden Christ has come in and the way of life of people has changed. And so Paul is going to instruct in chapter five a little bit of how they ought to live in the midst of the culture they find themselves of this port city that is encouraging a lifestyle opposite of what Jesus embodied and said we are to follow. The culture was different. These guys and gals are figuring out how do we live in this culture? Because that's you and I today, even the same way, is how do we live and thrive 
in the city of Westminster in America, how do we thrive and how do we live differently? And at times when we engage culture, when we look at culture, it's gonna look similar, but it's gonna have distinct differences. And so as we dive into chapter five this morning, he starts off this way, therefore, and if you highlight, circle that in verse one, it's referring to what he said prior in chapter four. Therefore, because of this, in verse 32 of chapter four, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the question is, who are you following today? If you think about that for a minute, who do you try to emulate? There's people we look up to. There's mentors that we have in life. And sometimes your mentors don't even know you exist because there may be someone different. If you're in the business realm or area, it might be someone who's highly successful in business that you admire, that you look up to, that you read the information or the books they publish. At other times, it's a mentor who's someone you know, your friends. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a coworker, a boss. There's mentors. It's the question of who are you following? Because as you follow them, as they are mentors to you, you start to emulate and model your life after them. When I was in junior high, in high school, really, when I came to faith, really understand and comprehend my faith, there was a guy named J.R. who was the youth pastor in the day. I had several youth pastors, and at a point in my life, he came in. He was mid-20s, and I emulated him because he walked with God in such a way that was attractive. The gospel made sense, and he lived in such a way that I would mimic him and, and walk with him. I'd go to him for questions on my faith or, or ask different things. How do I do in this situation, JR, what am I supposed to do? How do I respond to this person? How do I deal with my parents in this? And you would emulate. And what Paul is saying in chapter five, be imitators of who? It's God as beloved children. So realizing we need to imitate God as because we're his children and we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And you look at that and walk in love as Christ loved us. Love is an emotion, but it's a choice. It's not just the warm fuzzies, the, the butterfly tinglies you get. Love is also a choice. Walk in love as Christ loved us. What did he do? He gave himself. He chose to give himself up for us. Jesus was happy before us. He would have been happy without us. Instead, God chose us and sent his son who willingly went and chose to go to the cross, chose to face the death, chose to face all of that aspect out of love for you and me. And he is saying and imploring us, who are you following? Be imitators of God. You're to imitate, follow him, and you're to walk in love as Christ gave himself sacrificially towards us, which we'll get into in Ephesians 5. Hits this really hard, especially in marriage and relationships in general, friendships as well. We're to be imitators of that. When I was in fourth grade, that was the last year that I was in private school. So my mom homeschooled me in kindergarten, First through fourth grade, I went to private school. And what was unique about private school is it was the same 20 kids or 25, and sometimes we'd dwindle as the years went on. You'd, class sizes tended to shrink. But I remember that I would know the kids in September through about May. We were done first week of June. And then because it was a private school, kids were not just next-door neighbors. So all my friends at school were kind of scattered around the multiple school districts that were local and within driving distance of the private school. And in fourth grade was the final year before fifth grade, I transitioned over to public school. And it's like, oh, this ought to be interesting. This should be fun. 
And so I was excited, and I went to public school in fifth grade, which is all the neighborhood kids went there. And I'm like, oh, these are my neighbors. I didn't know any of these kids existed. The problem was in fifth grade is that most of these kids had grown up first, second, third, fourth together. And so by fifth grade, the pecking order has already been established. And here I am, a new kid trying to fit in and trying to figure out what group do I belong to? Only to know that in fifth grade, I transitioned to middle school and six, seven, and eight, all of a sudden were combined. And all of a sudden, the switcheroo happened again. And all from sixth through eighth grade, I tried to emulate and figure out where do I fit do I fit with the band? No, I'm musically challenged. I can tell you that. I don't sing or carry a tune at all. That's just why Psalm says, make a loud noise to the Lord. Mine's loud, not joy-filled. I didn't fit there. Well, then I tried to do sports. Well, if you're around me long enough, you realize I'm not the most aggressive sports guy. No, you want the ball here? The ball's yours. It's like, you, you don't do that. So I don't fit with the sports group. And academics, I'm not the greatest there either. I can get the grades, but I have to actually study and work at it, which means my social life goes down the tubes. Well, I kind of like to hang out with friends. So all of a sudden, I'm not getting straight A's, and I'm not in the honors courses. I don't fit there either. And it's this wrestling point of trying to emulate, trying to wear the certain clothing and the certain group that I thought had it all together, because we do that in life. We look and we compare, and as we're getting around people, we tend to think those people, they have it all together. And so as I got to high school, I was very confused as to which group do I belong to? I've tried them all. I don't fit any one of them. And as I got into ninth grade and 10th grade, it was about the clothing you wore. I'm from the 90s and early 2000s. Abercrombie and Fitch was the big clothing. Hollister was the big. For the record, my family's not made of money. Those clothing were expensive. So I had Old Navy or I had JCPenney smaller priced, so I didn't fit in with who I thought was the it crowd. And I kept trying to fit, and I kept trying to weasel my way and to emulate these people who I thought were the cool kids or the in crowd. And it wasn't until my junior year that after I came to know Christ, really as my Savior at 16, that I realized it doesn't matter about these other kids and me trying to fit in, and each I don't fit any, I really don't. So who, who do I care who do I care things about? What do I want to fit in? I want to fit where God wants me. And so I just made it a point that up to that point, I'm half in. I know the Sunday school answers. I know church answers. I know what's supposed to be. But then Monday through Friday, I'm around my peers and my friends and people who I'm trying to look up to, trying to emulate, and it's not working. I'm not fitting anywhere to finally realizing I'm a beloved son of God. Therefore, I'm to imitate not these kids, not the jocks, not the band, not the, the thespians and the drama, that, though I'd enjoyed that. And it's not the technology and it's not the grades, it's, it's God. This is where JR came into play and his influence on me of a faith leader. It didn't stay long. It was only a year before we moved high schools and I went to a brand new high school. And I said, at that point, I'm still, a, I believe in Jesus. So I'm going to walk as I'm supposed to walk and imitate him and so it's the question of who are we following? And as we get into this point, Paul is saying, look, I've taught you about what God has done to you, for you, chapter one. I've shown you that is grace through faith in chapter two. That's not what you have done, but it's by grace and is your faith in Jesus, what he's done 
to go into this point of chapter five of therefore, because of what Christ has done, because you are saved, because of these things, and because you've been prepared for good works, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, parents, you think about that too, as your kids, as they go off and engage, you hope they do the right thing, that you've instilled values and morals, that in situations you've trained them and prepped them, that they should imitate what is right in all the situations. And when they're wrong, they'll have the humility to say, I'm wrong. That's kind of what he's alluding to, that as children of God, since he is perfect and all-knowing, and he has modeled to Jesus how we're to live, we're to imitate Jesus' walk and choosing to love because Christ chose to love us. But, and here's the but, in verse three, it shifts gears. And Paul goes, you're to be imitators because we're children of God and choosing to be imitators. But, the culture, the life that you find around you, he goes in verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And he goes into kind of a twofer. Verse three is one, talking more about the actions that are in Ephesus, they're in a port city, debaucheries all around them. There's prostitution in the temples, which is encouraged and go for. Anything you want, anything you could have, you can have. It's all about you. How do you step ahead? How do you get ahead? Pride is the focal point of culture at this point as well. Humility is not a virtue or a value highly esteemed. It's pride. It's how do I get ahead? It's status. You look at Asian cultures today, and a lot of what you see and find is a lot of face. And so it's navigating that. And that's what the culture was big here. And it's not that any cultures are bad at all. It's just when you get immersed in it. I have friends who have traversed to missionaries in, in China and areas where they will say, if you go visit someone in Asia and they have an appointment and they're going to be late, if you popped in, they will wait until you leave before they go to there, even if they're late. It's about saving face. And here, Ephesus, it's all about whatever you want. It's all about getting ahead. It's a big deal and this is the point of actions. And Paul is saying very clearly, in the world they live, in the world we live, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named, or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper. These actions that are so associated with everybody, with culture in general, when they hear your name, they shouldn't think these things. And you look at sexual purity, and that's really what he's hitting on. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal in general. And the culture that we live in is a sex-saturated culture. It sells. Look at magazines. Look at anything around. It is focused on sex because it, it gets to the point, and it gets to the culture, and it gets and it wins. And Paul is saying, this shouldn't be for you. If you call yourself a Christian, it shouldn't be. The sexual immorality, what is that? Well, you can take a guess if you want, but I'll be pretty clear. Sexual immorality, it's anything contrary to what God has said is good. For the record, he is not saying that sex is bad. It's not what he's saying. Sex is good, and we'll get there in a moment. But what he's saying is outside of the confines of what God has ordained, it becomes negative. It becomes hurt-filled. And long-term, it leads to destruction, and so when he's talking about sexual immorality, well, yes, and we can live in a culture and say, well, is that homosexuality? Sure it is. It's also pornography. It's also sex outside of marriage. It's also going in all of those veins and areas. It's not just one or the other. It's all of those encouraged. And he's saying that shouldn't be. 
and covetousness, wanting what you can't have and going after it. These are actions. These are actually people doing these things. He's saying these actions should not be associated with the children of God. In verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He's going actions that pure, this whole idea of sexual purity, it's a big deal. The actions is a big deal. And then it's the words. It's our mouth. That is another big deal. We tend to say, well, I didn't act on anything. I just, I just joked about it. Well, no, Paul is saying it's both and. You, you shouldn't be acting on it at all, and you shouldn't be talking about it at all. We all know the dirty jokes, right? Again, I worked in a factory. I've heard lots of them. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to be around it. It means not participating in it. It's easy to start to say, oh, that was a funny joke. Yeah, whoa, that's way out of place. And he's going at that and saying, look, your actions ought to be in line of sexually pure, and your talk should be sexually pure as well. No foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead, there should be encouragement built up of one another. We look around, and it's so easy. Again, as I said last week, and hammered on it a little hard to tear down, to just post things. And he's saying here, your words matter because it's a slippery slope down. You start laughing. Oh, that was funny. Okay, then it gets a little worse. Okay, then it's a little worse. And then it's a little like, wait, we are so far out of line. And all it was was one little joke that started here that started going further and further and further. One little action, oh, it's not a big deal, that's okay, to all of a sudden, how, how, did, how did I get here? It's an action. One small step, one action, one decision takes you completely in the wrong direction. And the opposite is true. One faithful step in the right direction, one movement there slowly builds upon itself to where you're in a solid position. I can still remember as a guy in the mall growing up where the Victoria's Secret store was and what was on. And it's like, you got to think it's there, it's around. And so you're going to be exposed to it. It's going to be put in your face. It's what you do with it. Because Paul is not saying here, you're never going to do this. It says, these should not be named, nor the talk for you may be sure of this, he says, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he's saying, if you are good with this, he's not saying you're not going to struggle with it. He's not saying you might slip up here and there. He's saying those that are good with this, who continue to engage with this, who see no wrong with it, they've got no inheritance. God doesn't have their heart because they're okay with the debauchery of the culture, debauchery of all of it. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be tricked into thinking, oh, this is okay, this is not. He's being very clear. Don't listen to the clever arguments out there that might say, okay, in this instance, it's okay, but in this instance, it's not okay. It's like, no, if it's no, it's no. In our culture we live in, no never seems to mean no anymore. It just says, wait till later, or we'll keep pushing until we get what we want. We all struggle, and yet it comes to the point when we stop struggling. That's the issue. And if you find yourself there of you've stopped struggling to fight against it, that should concern you. That's the part where it's like, wait, 
we've gone too far. And sin is that sin will take you further than you want and keep you longer than you intend. And we're going to look at how do we then fight this. If we're not to have this, how do we fight that? We'll get there in a moment. Because here's what one commentator writes about this point. He goes, struggling to defend or setting up camp begins there. You struggle with it, you defend it, and then you start to set up camp. That's that slippery slope. That's the arguments that say, well, you wrestle with it. Okay, I want to hear the other side. I want to be okay with it. And you hear it and you read it and you're like, oh, okay, I can kind of deal with this. Okay, I'm all right here. Then you start to defend parts of it and then you start to camp in it and then you start to be inundated with it. It's just leads you. And Paul is saying, hey, this whole thing about sexual purity, it's a big deal. It is a big deal to God. It's a big deal for us. In our actions, it should not be there. In our words, it should not be there. Therefore, verse 7, do not become partners with them. In verse 8, for at the time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right for them. In 1 Thessalonians, if you were to hold here and go jump one book over, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, you sometimes question, what's God's will for my life? In verse 3, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, that big fancy word, if that's in your Bible, just means the process of making you more like Jesus. Sanctification is a process. It's step by step. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your process of being molded and shaped to become more like Christ, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of those things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And the reality is that we're called to be holy for God is holy. How do we get to holiness? And the reality is you won't get it here on earth. You strive for it. You keep fighting for it. One day in heaven, we will be made holy with God. We are not there yet. It's a process And as I mentioned, God's not opposed to sex. How do I know that? Well, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you jump to the left. In chapter 7, it says this, starting in verse 3. Well, I'm going to read verse 1 just to give context here. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So the Corinthian church has written to Paul and asked him the question, what we're about to read. What about sex? What about marriage? What about these things? So he's going to give his response. You've wrote concerning about these things. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Did I read that? I did. And you think, whoa, that's in the, what? But because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish, here's kind of that key to all this, I wish that all were as myself. Paul is referring to him. But each one has his own gift from God, one kind or another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else reconcile to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. 
To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And it's this concept that sex is actually very good. God designed it. God created man. The very beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis 1. And as he created man, he said there was one thing that was not good. Man was alone. So he creates woman. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, which tells us God's not opposed to it, that sex is a good thing. The reality is, and you can say, well, sex outside of marriage, we shouldn't have that view. We shouldn't be good with that and right. But sex outside of marriage does bear fruit over the long haul that becomes destructive. And it's the reality that if sin wasn't good, if sex wasn't good, we wouldn't be tempted by it. We wouldn't want to go do it. Reality is, it is good. And it does produce fruit over the long haul. It's the context of what context is it being participated and engaged with. And in the confines of marriage, it's a beautiful thing because that's how God had intended it, to bond the glue sometimes that helps hold relationships together. Will it do that outside of marriage? Yeah, it will. Darn right it will. But it might lead to some other areas down the road that aren't so good. And at the wrong place at the wrong time, there is consequences. And that's the truth. There's choices we make. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that if you wrestle with this or you find yourself like completely convicted with, I've engaged with all of that, The truth is you're a new creation in Christ. You were not defined by your past. Do you have to deal sometimes with your past? Absolutely. There's choices you made. There's stuff you've done that you might have to just continue to deal with, but God does not see that and define you as those. He defines you as new creation. And so he says, sexual purity, it's a big deal that you're to fight for it, that your actions should not be sexually immoral. You should not have covetousness and adultery and desiring these things, that you also at the same time with your words, there shouldn't be foolish talk, there shouldn't be filthiness, no crude jokes. It's not because God's opposed, God is for it. It's the slippery slope that where it takes you and leads is not good. And sometimes you say, well, I've, I've gotten away with this. I've engaged with this and I haven't gotten punished. Time, it's all about time. It will catch up. One way or another, it always does. So if it's a big deal to God and God's not against it, the path then to purity starts with avoidance and accountability. Sexual purity is a big deal to God. So how do we fight it? How do we guard? Well, avoidance and accountability. You read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's one of my favorite texts. And in it, it says this. Paul writes here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning everything we face Somebody else is wrestling with it. It's been seen. There's nothing new under the sun. There's common. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Not giving you more than you can handle. That's not true. That's a load of baloney. He'll probably overload you to more than you can bear just so that you realize you cannot do it on your own. But he won't tempt you with sin beyond your ability with his power within you but with the temptation, here's the, here's the principle, here's the gospel truth. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Meaning that we live in a life and a culture we're not supposed to isolate and remove ourselves from. No, we're to engage the people around us, engage culture in a way that is honoring and edifying to God. People are still deserving of dignity and respect. And Paul is not telling the church in Ephesus to ignore the people around them. He's saying just because they engage with these things does not mean you get to engage. Just because they're going to joke about this does not give you the right to joke about this. When I worked at the factory, it was amazing at the end of summer, some of the guys' language when I got around wasn't the same. And it was unique to me to hear that all of a sudden what was F this to other funny and fun words to we'd have a full-fledged conversation, I might hear it once, maybe twice. It was influence. I could have easily succumbed and went right in with it just to fit in so I didn't stand out. And instead, I was like, no, that's, that's not how I'm supposed to talk. And I feel awkward. I feel off. And the guys started to change some of that verbiage. And I didn't just run from them. No, I hung out with them. I engaged. It's where I learned to play poker in the break room with washers. Not the best, but I lost a few washers. But it's the point of just engaging. And then when they engage, I turned and I avoided. You read in Genesis and we'll get there at some point in the future, the story of Joseph. And it's an awesome tale of how God uses Joseph. He's picked, and Joseph has some seasoning to grow up. If you read in Genesis about Joseph and his story, he, he kind of says to his brother, kind of lords it over them a little bit, that I'm going to be greater than you, and I'm better than you, and they don't like this. So they end up beating him up and then shipping him off to a slavery in Egypt, where he ends up becoming number two to Pharaoh. But in the midst of that story, because of his gifts, because of his following Christ, and at that point, they didn't know who the Messiah was. He followed after God. And because of that, he was made head of the household of a guy named Potiphar, which was a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's court. And as he's in there, everything Joseph touches is like gold. He is respectful. He gives the glory and the honor to his master, Potiphar. And he just is honorable, and his character is there. And so Potiphar says, everything in my household, anything you possibly want, it's yours, Joseph, except my wife. That's off limits. Okay. And when you read the story of Joseph, you read that he comes in one day and all the servants have left. Potiphar's wife is there and she goes out because Joseph is a young man, attractive to the eye, it says. And so she wants him. She wants to have sex with him. And he comes in, she is there, and he turns around and she goes, would you just come to bed with me? And he goes, no. Your, ma your husband has not withheld anything from me. I will not disgrace him. This is not okay. And he turns and bolts, and she grabs his cloak. Now, she's embarrassed, shame-filled, but she holds up the cloak and tells Potiphar he tried to rape me. And he didn't do no such thing. He goes into prison where God uses that, and he ends up with the stories later. You can read about that. It's the point that he turns and runs. He doesn't stay and argue and say, no, no, we can't do this. Here's the reasons X, Y, and Z. You're married, so that means we can't. And you have kids, and this is what this is going to cause. No, he doesn't even argue the point. He turns and he runs. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Sometimes it's putting ourselves and realizing that there is no fighting this. Spiritual maturity, as Larry Osborne says, is no match for sexual temptation or any fleshly temptation. When the, why the Bible says flee and don't resist, flee. Flee from it, Run. And sometimes we say, okay, what's the accountability side? Well, that comes into guardrails, and I'll get to there in a moment. 
In verse 9, as we said in verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So he's referring to this. Therefore, don't become partners. Don't do these things. For at one time you were that way, but now you're in light. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's putting guardrails in place. Because in moments of strength, you're going to do the right thing. We are all going to face moments of weakness, or we want to give in. And when you put those guardrails in in moments of strength, it means you're going to bounce off those guardrails in moments of weakness. And how do you discern God's will? You start to read. You start to, what you're doing here, you put yourself in a position to hear God's word preached. You put yourself in a group. You, you pray. You seek. You take no part in the unfruitful works. And you can read about those in Galatians 5, 21 and 22. 21 speaks about all the things we don't engage with. And 22 says, but... This is what you should do. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. All these things are good. Bring it into the light. And your homework this morning is to go home and read 1 John. 1 John this week. Just read it. It's quick. It's short. It's in the New Testament. It's right near the end. It's John, John, Jude, and Revelation. Three of them. And you just read the first one. And 1 John is all about walking in the light. Because when you expose things that are in the dark to the light, it can't stay hidden. It can't be dealt with. Where does Satan work best? In the dark. Why? Because no one sees. No one knows what's going on. And yet when we walk in the light, when it's exposed to the light, it means it can't stay hidden and you have to deal with it. So you put things in positions of light. That's why my parents, when we had a computer growing up, the internet started to become a thing. They put it right in the living room where everyone walked through. Why? to help bring some accountability because you can get on at night because you can surf the web and things go bad at certain times. And so it's what are we doing to put accountability in place? What are we doing to flee the temptation, to run away from it, to walk in the light? Those who want to be like Jesus walk in love and put the needs and interests of others first. And those who want to be like everyone else, they walk in lust, putting their personal desires above all else. It's humility. I'm not thinking less of myself. I'm thinking less about myself. That's what we're called to do, to humble ourselves, to serve others. And when it comes to sexual purity, to fight the good fight, to not give in. And when we do, to repent, to get back up and to fight again and to run where we need to run, to put accountability and guardrails in place and to say, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep fighting. Not that you're going to win every battle. The war is finished. Jesus has come. He is one. And yet he said, but in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. And that's where our hope lies is that as we engage the culture around us, as we engage the world, we fight the good fight. We walk in the light of love. And you read this as it gets down a little further in chapter 15. Look carefully then how you walk. He says, two warnings, be imitators of God, but be against these, therefore, discern the will of God. Look carefully then how you walk, meaning how you live. Look, be mindful, be careful, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
He was talking almost 2,000 years ago. The days are still evil. They're still there. So we're to be wise. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's not meaning that you get drunk on the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? You read Galatians 5.22. You let the Spirit work. That dimmer switch concept and principle that I've said. You want more of God, you acknowledge and you seek after it. And he raises and he reveals more and more of him. That's what he's saying. Addressing one another, meaning every, everybody, not just your body of believers, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, which we've done giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're to lean into the Spirit. How do we walk in the light? One, you submit to God's viewpoint. That's that's step really one, is submitting to his viewpoint, how he views things. And not just how he views things, how does he view people? So it's one thing to see the doctrinal beliefs, the truth that is there in Scripture. That's awesome. The art side is then dealing with people. Because people don't always see the same things and view the same ways as I do. If I'm God-honoring, people edifying, then I'm going to view what God has to say. I'm going to trust that it's good, even if I don't like what it says, but that it is the best. And then if I believe that, now I have to live that out. But live it out in such a way that it's winsome to people. Instead of bashing people over the head or holding them to standards that they don't exist, Paul's not telling the city of Ephesus to restrain themselves, to not be sexually immoral. He's telling the body of believers these things. He's holding them to a higher standard and to live in such a way as wise because when you live in faithfulness, people take notice. It's why the guys in the shop started to take notice. I don't act like them. I didn't talk like them. What is different? And we never got to cross that bridge. I wish we did. That never got to came up. There was not an opportunity where I could have didn't feel where it was completely in the, it's going to go bad, it's going to be botched. It was, no, it's just meeting them where they were at, loving on them, giving them my attention, but not engaging in the same manner of verbiage usage or stories usage. It was character that mattered. It was faithfulness to what I believed in that mattered. And finally, step two is yielding to the Holy Spirit's prompting. When you walk in the light of love, you submit to God's viewpoint, and then you yield to certain points where the Holy Spirit just nudges. You ever had those moments where you're like, I, man, I just got to go talk to them. And you try to walk away, and you're like, nope, I got to go back. Or you, you see someone in need, you're like, no, I'm not, I'll take, someone else will take it. No, I got to go back and just do it. There's nudges. And the more you're in tune to God, it's not that you have more nudges, You're just more in tune to that still, small voice that just nudges. It's not always audible. Sometimes for different people, it is. I've never heard God speak to me verbally, but I've had clear, distinct moments in my life where there's just a moment of, you have to go talk to them. Or I'm in a conversation, I'm like, we need to talk about Jesus, and it just comes out. And it's just, when you're at that point of willingness, God sets your whole being ablaze. And some of us are so worried that we're not going to know the words to say. We're not going to know the scripture to say. And my point is, you don't need to. If you're willing, I'm amazed at how many times scripture just starts blurting out of my mouth. And I'm like, how did I recall that? It wasn't me. That's the Holy Spirit at work in me. And other times having the right words where it's not even blurting scripture to someone. 
because we tend to say we have a verse for everything. I'm going to find a verse for this, find a verse for that. It's like, stop it. Sometimes it's just presence. And sometimes it's just, can I encourage them without using scripture verses at them or beating them over the head? Sometimes people already feel guilty enough and it's saying, no, give thanks always for everything to God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is God's will that you walk in love, to have an attitude of thanksgiving, attitude of gratitude. You can't control people. I've tried. I say I don't have control issues as long as I'm in control. Most of us would agree, right? But we do have control over our attitudes and how we respond to people. And though we walk differently and we're charged to walk differently, not as sexually immoral, to realize that sexual purity is a big deal to God, that it's not just our actions, but it's our words, that we're therefore to be wise and discerning. So we walk in the light, recognizing that sex is not bad. Sex is amazing and awesome. In the confines, when God said marriage, it is awesome. And is it awesome outside of marriage? Yeah, I'm not going to lie, it is probably. It's not my story. My wife and I, we got married, that was it. That's, she's the only woman that I've known. For some of you, that's not the case. And I want to make point that St. Clinton says you're not defined by that past. You're not defined by the sex outside of marriage. You're not defined by all these things. You sometimes have to deal with these things, but you're a new creation in Christ. And so now it's what do you do today? What are you doing tomorrow to fight the good fight, to keep pressing on and to know that God is with you. He won't tempt you beyond your ability, but in fact will give you a place and a change of escape if your eyes are open. But if you're in that slippery slope of moving down, you're not going to see the opening to run because you're so far in. So wherever you find yourself, however deep, pick your head up and start today making the best next decision. That's faithfulness. Best next decision and build upon it each day, knowing that's wrong. Well, you used to be okay with this. Why aren't you? I'm not. Well, I don't understand. And you're going to probably face some flack if you're in the throes of it from your friends, from your peers who joke and mock. You keep on because it's worthwhile in the long run. It's God's plan for you to walk in love, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting. We don't like that word either in our culture. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, meaning do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, look to the care of others. Care about others. Submit to others. And guess what we get to talk about next week, ladies and gentlemen? Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands for the husband. Okay, what's next week? <laughs> Greg, you're up, right? No, I get to do that one. He gets to do parenting. We're not going to dodge the tough ones. We're going to look at what the scriptures say. How does that apply to today? And we're going to enjoy, we're going to learn, we're going to grow together. Because as much as I'm up here preaching to you, half the time it's to myself as well. And Greg, would, Pastor Greg would say the same thing. These messages are not just for you and only you. No, they're for me as well. We're reminded that God desires us to be holy because he is holy and he's given us, I can do all things, that verse, that's where it comes into play. I can do all things. I can live in this life in a God-honoring, people-edifying, kingdom-advancing way because God, his spirit is within me. So may you fight the good fight this week. May you drive to 1 John and read that this week and put things that are maybe in the dark, start bringing them to the light. And it might not be easy at first. It will maybe sometimes be harder at first. It's the long game. 
It's faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's consistency over the long time, and it's consistently getting back up when you mess up. Let me pray this morning for us. Lord God, you are grateful that you are on your throne right now, that, Lord, though we wrestle in this world with our sin nature that each and every one of us has, and each of us has different sins that ensnare us, that are, we easily fall after, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to have eyes to see this week that when we are tempted to where you come into play, that this week, Lord, where we feel like we're going to fall short, that you rise up and you reveal to us and give us the courage and the strength to do the right thing. That as we read through 1 John, as we think about bringing things into the light, show us what does that mean. Give us the courage to ask a friend if we need help. And at the same time, Lord, to, to remember that you are with us in this fight. In this world, we will have trouble, but you have overcome the world. And you've not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power. And so, Lord, may we rest in that. May we do the hard things. May we be faithful with the small choices and small decisions day in and day out. And would you guard our hearts and minds of those gathered here today and those online. And Lord, would you just allow us to be encouraged, challenged where we're at, but encouraged to know we're not alone in the fight. And allow us to grow together and have hearts that are humble. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.